You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 039 with Mike Harris, president of Campbell & Company. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence, and courage you need when it comes to investing like or investing with one of the top traders in the world. And I also want to acknowledge you for taking the time out of your busy day to spend some of it with me and today's guest. Almost every day I wake up to a new message or email with very kind and encouraging comments about the podcast. And trust me when I say this really does mean a lot. So thank you very much. If I could ask you one favor, it would be to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues via email or social media. Not only will it help me, but it will also help all of my previous and future guests, as well as yourself, since the bigger the audience, the more great traders would like to come and share their stories on the podcast. So please take a moment now to share the podcast with a handful of your friends and colleagues. On today's show, I'm talking to Mike Harris, president of Campbell & Company. Mike has an unusual background in that he has been involved in the managed futures industry ever since he left college. So he knows this area pretty well and has some interesting observations about the strategy as a whole, in addition to how Campbell & Company has been able to navigate this approach for more than 40 years. In fact, it's hard to find anyone who has been offering a managed future strategy as long as Campbell and Company. Needless to say, I feel honored and privileged to continue to bring guests with this kind of depth and knowledge to my podcast and share their stories with you. And if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersonplug.com website and click on the link of today's episode. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Mike, I think it's fair to say that many people who are involved in the hedge fund industry and certainly people who are involved in the managed futures industry is very familiar with Campbell and Company and your founder Keith Campbell of course who really in my mind pioneered this approach which we know today as the CTA or managed future strategy but before we get into the story of Campbell I wanted to ask you a completely different question a question that I sometimes struggle with myself in answering and it goes something like this. Imagine that you are invited to a cocktail party with people that you don't know. And after a few minutes, someone will come up to you and ask, so Mike, tell me what you do. How, how would you respond? How would you explain what you do? 
Well, that's a great question. And, you know, it's one that I'm sure that we all get uh, quite regularly. In fact, it's it's funny. Um, I still have a hard time after all these years explaining to my own mother what I do. I think she uh, <laughs> still tells her friends at cocktail parties that I'm a stockbroker. And that probably uh, is the reason why I get, you know, emails from relatives asking me what I think about Microsoft's earnings. Um uh, <laughs> But when I'm when I'm faced with that question, I think the answer that I give them is that I'm, you know, Mike Harris. I'm the president of Campbell and Company, which is a systematic investment manager that happens to specialize in a, a very unique asset class called managed futures. And at our core, uh, like many investment strategies, what we're really focused on is using data uh, to propel trades in a rule-based fashion. So instead of you know, using the fundamentals and, and being a discretionary type manager, we are using systems to, to help us trade the global markets in an, in an active, long, short fashion. Absolutely. Well, I want to stay with you for a little bit longer. So I want you really to go back and tell me your story, how you got into the business in the first place and, you know, perhaps what you were like as a kid, what were your interests, how was it to, you know, growing up? So please feel free to go back as, as far as you want. Well, you know, unlike many of the uh, the students when I started in, in undergraduate studies, um, I, I knew exactly uh, what I wanted to pursue from my first day um, in college. Uh, I, I had a plan. I knew that I wanted to major in economics and Japanese because I thought that both of those would be um, uh, disciplines that would help me pursue a career in the financial markets. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned childhood. I actually had uh, my maternal grandfather was a uh, love to invest. Was always, uh, you know, doing different things in the stock market, and in fact, uh, bought me a stock when I was very young in uh, Tops, which is a company that made uh, baseball cards. Wow! Uh, because I I used to collect them, and he used to um, he bought me that stock, and and every week when he'd come to visit, we'd sit down with the Wall Street Journal and we track the stocks. And um, I remember I'll never forget six months into it, I got my first dividend check, and <laughs> I was pretty excited about that. And and you know, I just never forget him explaining to me that. I own part of that company, and as they made money, um, they got they shared their profits with me, and that's why I got that special check. And that really, for me, was was where it all began, and and how I started to plan my academic career around uh, pursuing a career on Wall Street in the financial markets. As it turned out, I think it's really interesting to mention that I'm one of probably the few people in our industry who literally have been a part of Managed Futures since the first day uh, when I started on the street. I got a job with Dean Witter Reynolds in New York City in the World Trade Center working in their Managed Futures department uh, and literally started, I believe, about two days after I graduated um, uh, from uh, from undergraduate studies. Um, from there, interestingly enough, uh, we were an allocator and we had money invested with Campbell and Company, uh, <laughs> as well as you know John Henry and a number of other uh, kind of legendary CTAs. And so I, my you know my baptism was very early uh, in the space. Um, I then kind of through doing due diligence on managers caught that market bug that that so many do, and realized that my calling was to to be on a trading floor or a trading desk. Uh, and uh, went across the street to the World Financial Center to work for Revco. 
uh, and was working in a department that had allocated money to a number of CTAs and, and macro hedge funds. And so I actually was uh, covering many CTAs, including Campbell & Company as a futures broker. Sure. And then uh, a short time after that, um, as I kind of saw the industry uh, becoming more electronic and, and realized that my value as a broker was somewhat limited, I was drawn to the buy side and really wanted to know when I pick when someone when I picked up the phone and it was a CTA calling they wanting to buy 10 year futures I was you know really taken by I wonder what's happening mm. um, systematically that's causing them to want to put that trade on right now and so mm. as I looked to interview uh, for jobs on the buy side Campbell was one of the firms that I approached um, fortunately for me they needed a European shift trader mm-hmm. and I joined Campbell and Company about 15 years ago in the year 2000. Uh, and then through uh, my 15 years here, I progressed from European trading desk to the currency 24-hour day operation, mm-hmm. uh, then became deputy manager of the trading floor, uh, became a global head of trading for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And then two years ago, as we were um, going through our third succession plan, uh, myself and Will Andrews, who's our CEO, he was our co-head of research, the two of us um, took over the firm. And for the last two years, since 2012, I've been actively helping to manage Campbell and Company. That's fantastic. Great story. And by the way, great gift that you uh, received back then. I have to say that uh, that's inspiring. He was a special man. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, I mean, your story, I think, is, is, is fascinating. But the story that uh, I very much would like to dive into with some level of detail is the story of, of Keith Campbell and the firm that he created back in 1972. And let me try and set the stage a little bit from my perspective, because what fascinates me um, when I think about managed futures is really four big stories come to mind. So we have the story of the Turtles, we have the story of AHL, and we have the story of John W. Henry and the story of Campbell. And You know, I know I may offend some well-known CTAs by not mentioning them in this context. And, you know, if that's the case, then they can reach out to me and set me straight. But the fact is that both the story of the Turtles and the story of AHL has become quite well-known over the years. And, of course, John Henry was all, always covered in the press when, when he was active. But the Campbell story, which, in fact, is the longest of all of them, has not really, in my mind, been covered as much in recent years. So I'm really grateful for having the opportunity today to share this with our global audience and really would like you to take the stage here and tell us how the story unfolded 42 years ago and, and what the evolution has been so far. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And I think just to, to address one of your points, one of the reasons that the story hasn't been told as much is that um, Campbell and Company, from from our very beginnings, we've always been raised as a, as a humble organization. We've tried to kind of fly under the radar. At the end of the day, um, the people that matter the most are our clients, and we want to make sure that they're happy. It's not as much a, a, as far as uh, making sure that the media and the general public is, is as happy. So, But I, I rep- really appreciate the fact that you have have noticed the fact that um, we haven't been talked about as much and uh, and have given us this opportunity so you know interestingly enough I um, I wanted to 
this is an interesting story regarding Keith, uh, how he how he began. I've I've heard this story told you know many times, and sure. it's it's honestly one of my favorites. You know, Keith started in the the financial markets out in California. He was a financial advisor slash planner uh, in working with clients, and and he like many people in the '60s caught the the bug for commodity futures. They mm-hmm. were there was quite a bit of volatility in those markets, and uh, it was something that he was really attracted to. Um, he started actually managing uh, client portfolios in the futures markets in the, in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, um, he had a client uh, who was a PhD who, uh, who worked at the, the Stanford Research Institute. Right. And um, they started having conversations about how Keith was trading the futures market for this particular uh, person's account. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was explaining that, you know, it was just, he was following the charts. He was in those days using graph paper and a, and a ruler. <laughs> and, uh, and this PhD was, was talking to him about uh, this, this wild concept, which was a computer. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, the mainframe computer at Palo Alto and how he had access to this. And so as they kind of put their minds together, they thought about how could they take Keith's technical approach and create a rule-based system that the computer could effectively run uh, on their behalf. And, mm. and that's really where it, it all began. Uh, in fact, they started with the beginnings of Campbell Fund Trust in, in trading that portfolio in 1972 using this very basic system. Uh, and then really... Um, Keith Campbell made that made the decision strategically at that point to come back to Baltimore, where he was uh, born and raised. And okay. in 1973, he got his brother Kevin, as well as uh, Bill Clark, one of his uh, mm-hmm. cousins, who sure. later became uh, one of our early heads of research, and uh, and really put together Campbell and Company. That's where the name comes from, mm-hmm. uh, and got things started. As Campbell progressed over the years, one of the keys I think to Keith's success. Uh, and one of the things, quite frankly, that makes him different than many of the other CTAs uh, is that Keith himself was not a quant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not some sort of a, a scientist or somebody who was kind of the, the brilliant mind behind it all. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd, I'd say he was much more in the camp of a real innovative business leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, one of his guiding principles was, was the mastermind principle. He believed that the power of you, when you take two minds and put them together, you effectively create a third mind, uh, almost an invisible mind that, that then, then there's a multipli- uh, applying uh, effect sure. of putting all the smart people together. So he went out and began to hire very intelligent people, in some cases, other PhDs, um, to, to really work together and, and create a, a research culture that then has grown over the years into what we now know as Campbell and Company. Sure. I think it's interesting that um, after the first 20 years of, of Campbell's existence, even then, with all of this experience and, um, and, and being one of the biggest CTAs, certainly one of the oldest, mm. uh, Keith knew that you know, he needed to hire somebody, not just on the PhD side, but also on the business side. And so he went out into the futures markets and, and he found Bruce Cleland. And a lot of people in the industry remember Bruce Cleland as somebody who was at the time running Rudolph Wolf, which was a very large futures brokerage operation up in New York. Um, he was somebody that had had been around the markets and really understood futures and and the and the business. And Keith brought him down to Baltimore to uh, to run Campbell and Company as our president and CTO uh, C- CEO mm-hmm. starting in in 1993. 
And so uh, Keith, uh, Keith then passing the torch on to Bruce for the next 20 years. Uh, and certainly uh, Campbell had a lot of success from 93 to 2012. Uh, and then in 2012, Bruce uh, uh, made his retirement. And uh, as I mentioned before, Will Andrews and I, um, after, after both having been at the firm uh, over 15 years, uh, took on the reins as president and CEO. Mm. It's funny you mentioned uh, Bruce Cleland in 1993. In fact, Bruce Cleland came to my humble, humble offices in Copenhagen in 1993. And what was so great about it was really, as a memory at least, was really that Campbell at the time was uh, you know, very dominant and to have someone like him so prominent within the industry, within your firm, actually take the time out to come and, and visit a small aspiring company in, in Scandinavia that wanted to get into this space um, is something that I, you know, has, has never, you know, forgotten. And, and I think that says a lot about, uh, you know, Bruce and, and, and the culture that you have. So, uh, so that, that's quite interesting for me on a personal level. What are the big, if you look at that 40-year or 42-year period, I know you mentioned there's sort of been three, you know, leaders or teams at least. What are the big, would you say, um, stages or, or events in, 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 uh, in that 42-year period, would you say, before we get into the specifics, but just sort of on an overall basis? Well, I think probably one of the big challenges, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to speak for Bruce, but I can only imagine after joining the firm in 1993, um, we went into one of our larger drawdowns in, in 94, 95. Um, that was a, a challenging period for the firm for sure. And I'm sure it was something where he probably at that time, I'm, <laughs> I'm not putting words in his mouth, sure. but was, you know, maybe second guessing his his choice to, to leave uh, New York and come to Baltimore. Um, but, you know, with his, uh, with his, uh, real strength and 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 fighting spirit. Um, he he hunkered down. He knew that really the the focus needed to be in the in the area of research. Uh, he made some real strategic hires. In fact, Dr. Shawa Hugh, who's our current director of research, has been with the firm 20 years and was one of those uh, strategic hires that was made uh, in that 93 94 period uh, when the firm went into that drawdown. And I think that that's really been kind of uh, one of the the real uh, you know, watershed moments for Campbell and Company, where we learn that in periods of of difficulty, um, the best thing to do is to reinvest in the business, to kind of put your nose to the grindstone, uh, and just fight through it. Um, mm. As opposed to, you know, a lot of people with MBAs will tell you that, as from a business standpoint, you know, when you go into a tough period like that, where um, AUM declines, revenue goes down, that 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 the you want to do the opposite. You want to yeah. kind of protect the business by, you know, shedding employees and really kind of hunkering down and trying to, to, to get through it. I think that in our business in particular, when you go through those tough periods, if anything, you need to show signs of strength that you're reinvesting in the business and that, that you are you know, here for the long haul. And I think that the fact that the firm at that point was over 20 years mature mm -hmm. um, helped them to be able to do that. Maybe if that struggle had come in the first couple of years in the 70s, I don't want to speak for Keith, but maybe it would have been more difficult to make that investment in the business. And 
And I think that that, that then kind of dovetails nicely as, as you look at kind of the most recent five to 10 year period. Um, certainly we as a firm went through our struggles in kind of the 07, 08 period um, uh, with a, a bit of underperformance relative to the industry. And looking back into, into that kind of crucial period in the 94, 95 cycle, uh, we took the exact same approach of really kind of, uh, you know, surrounding ourselves, reinvesting in the business um, and, uh, and working hard to kind of, you know, get back to uh, our, our footing at the top of the industry. Uh, and I think that if you look at performance over the last four to five years, you'd agree with me that um, we have kind of gone back to uh, being one of the, the key players in the space. So I'm, I'm really proud that the firm was able to do that. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, no, that that's uh, very important to uh, to bring that up. Before we leave, sort of Keith's early beginnings completely. In my recent conversations with uh, Jerry Parker uh, and and also with uh, Martin Luig, we talked a little bit about what the early models for the turtles looked like and what the early models of AHL looked like. I don't know whether you know this, but I'm just curious what the very early beginnings of Keith's technical trading uh, was based on uh, and and also how he got the idea to apply rules to to trading because I, I can only imagine that back in the 60s not many people were thinking like that well I, I think that in talking to Keith you know he's always said that I think because he really um, was a lover of the charts mm. and believed in in the technicals there was always that kind of rule-based approach um, though, though systematic trading in CTAs is not always, you know, based on you know explicit technical analysis, there are a lot of similarities. Mm. Um, just in the sense that, you know, when you say, uh, as a rule, if the if the market, if we're gonna, you know, when the market, when the 50-day moving average uh, crosses the 200-day sure. moving average, I'm going to enter or exit a position. I mean, that in itself is a rule, mm. and and by kind of writing that down and holding yourself to it. From a risk management standpoint, it, it creates a return profile over time that's way more repeatable than just kind of playing, you know, Monday morning quarterback and sitting there and making different decisions with with every tick in the marketplace. So, I, you know, from talking to Keith, I really believe that that is something that was always at his core. And I think that you know, when you think about the early days and what those models look like, for sure, um, Campbell and Company um, was a trend follower. Yeah. Uh, there's no doubt about it. In fact, if you think about time horizons, I'd say that. Um, we were a medium-term trend follower. We, you know, mm-hmm. we were certainly weren't looking out beyond a year, and we weren't very short-term. I think that you know, operationally as well as um, mm-hmm. from a sharp ratio standpoint, uh, back in the '70s, you know, you, you definitely there was an advantage to having less turnover in the portfolio, <laughs> and medium-term trend following certainly helped with that. Um, and I think that that really is 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 the interesting part of the story is that mm-hmm. you know, Campbell, though there's been a lot of press recently about uh, what we've been doing. In some of the non-trend following uh, models that we've developed, um, when you think about it, we really got into non-trend following with the evolution of uh, trading FX carry strategies, and we started doing that in the late '90s. So we, we've been at that for over 15 years, and what we've tried to do is really just enhance the non-trend following portion of our portfolio to help diversify um, for times where, and to be quite frank with you, there are periods where trend following doesn't work as well. We wanted to, you know, as an absolute turn manager, add things to the portfolio that were going to help diversify so that in those periods where 
trend following didn't work as well, um, we would have a more stable return profile for our clients. So, you know, there's there's been quite an evolution over sure. the 42 years. Sure, sure. absolutely. Now, um, I wanted to ask you a, a slightly different question, and that is that you as the president of Campbell & Company, you know, obviously that's a big part of your life, but what do you like to do when you're not working? What do you like to spend your time doing? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm an avid reader. Um, I, I've always... Um, criticized uh, young people coming into our business uh, who say, you know, I, how could I have any experience? I've, I've never had a job before. And, uh, and when I talk about experiences, I say, yes, but you know, I feel like the financial markets are probably second to history and military in, in the sense that everybody who's ever traded anything seems to have written some sort of a book. Mm. Uh, so there are a lot of experiences that you can gain as an individual by, uh, quite frankly, uh, learning from the mistakes of others through kind of reading their stories. Um, so I, I've always been a huge reader. I, I also enjoy sports. And in the, in the most recent kind of 10 years ch uh, chapter of my life, uh, I really enjoy spending time with my family, and sure. including my, my two kids. Yeah, no, fantastic. Now, before we jump into the next topic, I wanted to ask you a, a slightly broader question. And that is, we know that many of the most successful managers today really have been based around its founder you know, an individual, and the firm is often personified with this individual. But in your case, your founder stopped a long time ago running the business, as you've explained. What difference do you think this makes in terms of Campbell as a business from an internal point of view, but also Campbell as a business partner to an investor? Well, I think that one of the great benefits of systematic investment managers is that we remove key man risk from the equation. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you hear talked about all the time in discretionary macro is what happens when you know Paul Tudor Jones or George, or George Soros or any of these real visionary traders, what happens when they leave their firm? And I think that on the discretionary side, they've worked really hard to build uh, teams, to allocate risk to those teams of traders, to teach them their ways, but there still is a, a bit of a fear when that principal kind of exits the scene mm. and leaves their name on the door Uh, but isn't present on the trading floor anymore. And I think that, that the real benefit of our strategy is that most folks understand the fact that um, you know that, that you know the models are the ones that are that are executing the trades. Mm. Now that being said, I think we all can acknowledge that many of the legendary CTAs are started by, as I said, a, a quant or a scientist who is them they themselves kind of the people that are building the models. So I guess to that extent, there may be a worry that uh, when the founder decides to to retire or walk off into the sunset, um, that the research itself may lose something. And I think that. Campbell's in a very unique position, as I mentioned, because we were founded by a business person who had a financial background, not a quant. Um, and, and by surrounding himself and really promoting a culture of, of, of team sharing of information, um, we've created a very sustainable business model where uh, groups of people over time have worked here um, on our models. And, and even though those people may not stay with us, Uh, the models do continue to reside as our intellectual property. And as each new person comes to the firm, they help enhance that over time. So I feel that though all businesses have that risk, 
I feel that, you know, as a CTA and specifically to our situation as Campbell, we have considerably less of that risk, mm. as well as the fact that being having been around for over 40 years and the fact that we've gone through these three uh, uh, succession plans, I think that that also um, gives some faith to the investor that, uh, as well as our in- employees, that, that we've executed on these transitions before um, and that, that we know something about how to do it. Sure. No, absolutely. It's very interesting. I mean, uh, another well-known firm that's been around for about 40 years, Don Capital, they've done the same. They've been through their uh, transition. So, uh, it, you know, maybe that's the mark. Maybe that's the mark when people start thinking about it. Who knows? But uh, anyway, I wanted to ask if you could, because you have a number of different programs today, and just from a, even though we're going to talk about the probably the largest uh, of your programs as, as kind of the theme, I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe just highlight from an overall point of view what your product offering looks like today sure so one of the things we've done recently is really kind of um, almost bifurcate the portfolio and and create almost a menu-based approach Uh, what we've heard over the years if you think back to you know 10 20 years ago investors were still educating themselves on the space they would come to us and say you know please give me what you think is your best portfolio. Mm. You know, we've come a long ways as, as an industry now. And in fact, when I'm out there as the president of Campbell meeting with a lot of uh, institutional clients, in many cases, they've hired their own PhDs. And, and many of these folks have maybe worked at a CTA or had their own CTA in the past uh, or have allocated to CTAs and really understand all of the various alpha sources and drivers of return. So now what we find is that a lot of investors come to us. Some come to us and say, we want what you believe to be your best portfolio, mm-hmm. which is uh, our flagship managed futures portfolio. But in other cases, they may come to us and they're trying to build um, a fund of funds or a group of managers. And so they say, we just want your trend following, or we just want your non-trend following models, uh, or we just want your 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 cash equities, mm-hmm. um, which for us is statistical arbitrage across the globe. So with that, as I said, we have a, a trend following portfolio where investors can get access to just our trend systems. We have what we call our PRISM portfolio, which is just our non-trend following models. Uh, and it's the same portfolio that that's in the flagship vehicle. Uh, then we have, as I said, our flagship fund, which is our managed futures portfolio, which is uh, the the a mantra behind it is that it's enhanced trend following. So it's an 80% allocation to trend following and a 20% allocation to non-trend following or the that PRISM portfolio we just spoke about. And then lastly, we have our multi-strategy portfolio. And multi is what includes our, our equity stat ARB. So there you have a 40% allocation to trend following, a 40% allocation to non-trend, and then a 20% allocation to the uh, equity stat ARB. And we, we believe that that's the most diverse offering uh, that we can offer to institutional clients. But in many cases, if they're looking for something with a higher degree of correlation to, to CTAs, they're going to want our flagship managed futures portfolio. And then obviously, if they want to bifurcate that and invest in just trend or non-trend, we have vehicles for that as well. Mm. And do you, I mean, just, I mean, I know these questions are, are hard to, to answer sometimes, but do you have a wish from a business point of view to say, okay, in the next five years, I really want to see us having at least 25% of our assets in this strategy and 25% in this strategy just to become a more diversified, systematic investment firm or do you re- or do you expect maybe that actually 
you know, the original managed futures will always be our core and always be maybe seven to five percent of our business? That's a really good question. Um, I think as a business person, I always, I, I mean, we're selling diversity here. So uh, I would love to have more diversification uh, across the various portfolios. That said, my, my fear is always that um, allocators from time to time will try to, you know, trade managers or trade styles. Mm-hmm. And my fear would be that when trend following does well, people will allocate to trend following at absolutely the worst time yeah. um, or vice versa to the non-trend following portfolio. And so at the end of the day, a tremendous amount of research has gone into both our flagship vehicle and our multi-strategy vehicle that both offers the diversification across trend, non-trend, in the case of multi, the cash equities. So I would feel more comfortable having the larger portion of my assets in those two vehicles simply because I think that they're going to have the, the the longer or the better, I should say, you know, track record because of, you know, the sharp ratio and the, and the risk-adjusted returns that, that we've seen in the back tests. Mm. Yeah, and I guess also it's it's quite interesting to see that many of the largest firms in our industry really are one product shops. I mean, Winton is one uh, aspect, and so on and so forth. I mean, they really are one product shops. So uh, maybe maybe it is also sometimes too hard for investors to to make the right choice, and it's better that you do it for them. But um, interesting. Now you've got a big organization, so um, I wanted maybe to ask you to. Explain a little bit about how the organization is structured from, from just from an overall point of view. Sure. Well, our current asset center management is just over $4 billion. Uh, we have a staff of about 132 people here in Baltimore. Uh, we do have a few salespeople that, that live in, in, in various parts of the country and the world, but uh, the lion's share of that 132 is here mm-hmm. in Baltimore. Uh, about 80 people of that 132 are involved or touch the investment process every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's important to mention as well is when I think about diversity, and you just kind of brought this up as far as having the assets split amongst multiple products, but there's another layer of diverse diversification via assets, and that's the types of clients mm. that you have. If you have uh, all of your clients are in one, t- they're all fund of funds, or they're all from one part, particular part of the world, uh, or they're re- all retail or all institutional, that in itself gives you some concentration risk. And I think one of the things that uh, Keith Campbell did a great job of in the early days was being one of the early movers in the in the private wealth distribution business. So we've been creating limited partnerships that retail investors who are accredited in the United States can invest in for many, many years. And, and that's taken the form of our business really being about 50-50 split between institutional clients and, and private wealth clients. And what's nice about that is, is that they tend to kind of uh, move in and out of, of managed futures at different times and for different reasons. Uh, and that really, to be honest with you, probably gives us more diversification from an AUM standpoint mm. than even diversification across various products on the institutional side. Um, and I say that because, you know, there comes, the, you know, getting into the, the private wealth distribution business um, is not easy. I think one of the reasons that we've been successful is because of our size. Mm. Um, uh, oftentimes people, you know, compare us to other CTAs who may have a slightly lower headcount than 130 at $4 billion under management. But I often remind them that, you know, part of I think what makes us special is that private wealth piece. 
And without the 130 employees, we would probably find it very difficult to do that level of retail distribution. So um, I don't think it's an apples to apples comparison to look at a $4 billion CTA that only has institutional investors, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. It's a very good point. In fact, it's something I wanted to bring up later, but I can't actually remember what my question is. So uh, we may come back to this, uh, which is a bit of a a unique feature for sure. Um, So you say 80%. 80, 80 of the 130 is involved in, in the investment process. But do you nowadays with technology, nowadays with outsourcing opportunities, how, how do you view that? Do you outsource any of the of the things that you do or, or do you really keep it in-house? Uh? That, that's a great question. So right now, there's, there's limited outsourcing when it comes to actual people. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're, where we are seeing some unique outsourcing opportunities would be in, in technology. Right, uh, and and this is really something that that as a firm, it's been a real uh, transition for us. Um, really, when you think about it, you know, twenty to forty years ago, there was no vendors on the technology side that could provide anything that we needed to do our business. And so, another element to our higher headcount is that we have a very large technology team. Because to be quite honest with you, we've had to build all of our systems going back in history. Right. Uh, in the last five to ten years, we've seen that change dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, although many technology companies uh, initially focused on what I'll call the big asset classes like cash equities and fixed income, what we've seen recently is that they've started to migrate into um, what I'll call the hedge fund space. So they've embraced futures and options, OTC markets like uh, cash currencies and swaps. Uh, and so with that, um, we've now seen a whole host of products that we can use uh, to help us be more efficient. Because at the end of the day, we're still going to need technology resources like software engineers, but I want those people focused on our intellectual property. I want them working with research to build better alpha sources, not working in the trading department to build a better blotter for the traders to use to mm. to route orders out to the marketplace. And so that's really been our focus as of late is uh, embracing outsourcing of technology in areas like uh, accounting, operations, uh, certainly the back office, uh, sure. and then the front office on the on the trading side. Sure, absolutely. Now, I don't know whether it's best to use the research team as an example, but what do you look for when you want to add people to your business or your say your research team? What are the what are the things that you look for in, in the people you want to join the, the Campbell family? It's a great question. I mean, I think uh, if I could summarize it, uh, we're looking for strong, creative, critical thinkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and where we get those people from, I think that's a bit of the secret sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. If you just go to um, other CTAs or to the banks and and just bring people in who have an understanding of the financial markets, I think that you do want to have some of those people as part of your team. But I we've also always believed that there are some really interesting people that you can pull directly out of academia. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some folks that may even be working in that have a PhD, say, but are working in another discipline, say, um, physics or or other disciplines within science. Uh, we've even had some success in hiring people that, that had maybe a medical background. Um, I remember one particular gentleman who was working at the University of Chicago analyzing brainwaves. Uh, and at the end of the day, he said, well, how can you compare this to, to financial markets? And we said, you know, it's just a piece of data on a chart. 
and maybe the ways that you're looking at it from a medical standpoint are uh, different than the way we're looking at financial markets. And maybe there's something we can learn from that. So there are a lot of kind of interesting examples of, of people who have come from really unique backgrounds uh, that help to kind of add value to the overall team. Mm-hmm. And I think that that word team is really important because going back to Keith and, and how he started the firm in the early days, that, that notion of he couldn't do it all by himself. He needed to bring the firm back to Baltimore to enlist some of his family members to create a team and then using that mastermind principle to build out uh, a team of very intelligent individuals. Um, that's probably our number one focus is, is the person a team player? Uh, there are a number of people in our industry who um, have a hard time sharing their work with others. They they believe that they came up with an idea and they don't want to run around and tell everybody else about it. Um, that that's completely anti to what we believe here. We we want people that are going to work in a team fashion, share their ideas, uh, not be afraid to be criticized uh, by others in the group because we believe that that's what makes the idea better. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, um, you know that that's what gets that key man risk effectively, you know, limits it, limits that key man risk um, so that, you know, Campbell and company and its models can continue to live on into the future. Sure. No, absolutely. I had one more question about sort of the, the organizational side, and that is a little bit about how, how do you build a strong culture in, in an organization like yours? What, what are the, some of the the uh, the key things that you do to to build that team and make the team work so well together. I think at our core, it comes down to um, really the history that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember what Campbell was like when I joined 15 years ago. Uh, you know, to be quite frank, um, it, it's a family culture. Yeah. Uh, we take care of one another, and though we work very, very hard for our clients uh, to make our strategies better, I don't think it's the same kind of cutthroat environment that that I was exposed to when I was working on Wall Street in New York. Sure. And I think that being in Baltimore from a cultural sense helps us to kind of slow down a little bit, be very thoughtful about our research. Um, we don't have to rush everything to market. Like I felt that you know every deadline in New York had to be done by five o'clock, and sometimes work uh, you know was was rushed and um, what wasn't as good as it could have been. So um, I think that being in Baltimore and having that strong sense of family has always been a big part of our culture. Um, and and once again, I, I go back to everything being done in more of a team fashion. Mm. Sure. I mean, think about our, our leadership structure. It's myself as president and Will Andrews as CEO. We are, we are co-running the firm, which mm-hmm. means that um, I can be out on the road meeting with an institutional investor on the on the other side of the planet. And Will is back here running the shop and, and vice versa. If, if he's on holiday, I'm, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, we think about kind of, we have a very strong executive team with, with nine members, uh, total Campbell experience of over 100 years, kind of average tenure is uh, eight to 20 years per individual. So um, when people come here, uh, they obviously feel pretty strongly about the culture because in many cases, um, you know, we want those people that, that are looking to retire in yeah. Baltimore at Campbell and, and not, you know, jump from job to job like we see at, at many other firms in some of the bigger cities like New York, Chicago and London. Yeah, I guess, you know, that that's definitely very uh very true. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to jump to more of the uh, sort of the, the trading-oriented uh, side of our conversation. But before we get there, I want to talk about track record, and and I want to ask you a little bit about how people 
or how investors, potential investors, should look at your track record. Um, and the reason I ask this is because we know that models evolve. We know that, you know, the trading models that Keith used in, in, in the 70s are certainly not the models that, that are being used today. So this is also a little bit of a kind of an educational question, and that is, how should investors approach looking at a manager with a long track record um, and make sense of it? Well, it's a great question. And we, we start by always telling people that we're happy to show you our 42-year track record. But almost one of the first things that we mm -hmm. caution people against is, you know, be careful when you're looking at the 70s. Yeah. Uh, and and for, for many reasons. First off, Keith would be the first one to tell you that I believe one of his early portfolios um, was about 12 markets and they were all commodities and commodities during the 70s, as we all know, during a period of, of uh, uh, aggressive inflation uh, had some very, very big moves. Sure. So though we had some very you know, spectacular returns back in the 1970s. Um, we try to manage people's expectations by telling them, you know, it's a much larger, more diverse portfolio. Um, our, our group of strategies is much larger and more diverse than it was back then uh, with multiple styles and lookbacks and, and trend falling and non-trend falling. Uh, so, so that's one of the first things that we always tell people. Sure. Um, I think when I tell people as far as looking at our track record, you know, one of the things that I, I like people to focus on, to be quite honest with you, is the last three to five years. Right. And, and that's for two very important reasons. The first is, um, you know, let's face it, the last five years has been a very challenging one for CTAs. Mm. Um, and I think Campbell and Company has done a great job of innovating uh, and building and adding new strategies to the portfolio mix that have really helped us to outperform. I'm very proud of that. Mm. And so I certainly want people to focus on that because I think that that sets the bar quite high. In addition to that, I, 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 we've made you know many enhancements to the portfolio since that 07, 08 period. Uh, and I think that it's important to look at the portfolio because the way it is today um, it hasn't changed a whole lot, um, you know, in the last five years. But you know, since that 0708 period, there have been, you know, there were changes that were added in after that period of underperformance that have changed some of the dynamics of the portfolio. So I think if you really want to be laser focused on what that portfolio is going to look like in the future, focusing on the most recent period is probably the most applicable. Mm -hmm. And if I could, I mean, I, I just in, since we've mentioned some of these changes, if I could just summarize them, mm -hmm, you know, as I absolutely. mentioned before, one of the first changes we made on, on the back of kind of the 08 period um, was to, to change the investment objective. Okay. One of the reasons we underperformed was we had a much healthier balance between trend and non-trend in the portfolio. And though we were positive in 2008, we didn't have the, as high of a return profile as some of the other CTAs that were more focused on trend following. And what we heard from investors was that that's in fact what they were looking is for that bias to have a reasonable correlation to other CTAs. And if other CTAs were going to have a lot of trend falling in their mix, or in some cases, 100% allocation of trend falling, we knew that we had to have that bias as well. Right. So we set the research team off on an optimization pro project to, to come back and tell us what they thought would deliver what we call now enhanced trend following. And 80-20 was effectively what they arrived at. So, okay. you know, that change was made post-08 and we've stayed at that 80-20 allocation since that period. 
In addition to that, you know, we've added uh, several new forms of trend following. Going back to when Keith started the firm in the 70s, uh, we focused on what I'll call market-based trend following, which is where you're following the underlying signal of each and every market in the portfolio and effectively mapping a long or short position uh, to the strength of the uptrend or the downtrend. Mm. Uh, Now we've added both what I'll call sector-based trend following as well as factor-based trend following. Sector-based trend following is where you actually uh, think about the, the intuitive economic movement of markets and mm-hmm. uh, what makes economic sense as far as grouping markets together to kind of lose some of the noise of, of individual you know market moves mm-hmm. uh, and then effectively create an index around that grouping of markets and trade them as a basket. Um, I think one of the most interesting things about sector-based trend following is in an environment over the last few years where many CTAs complained about the rise in correlation between markets, <laughs> which in, in a market-based sense effectively limited their opportunity set, sure. uh, a model like this actually did quite well mm-hmm. because as investors moved in and out of risky assets, as an example, instead of seeing a trends in, say, WTI crude or Brent or uh, unleaded gasoline futures, you actually saw just investors moving in into commodities like energies and moving out, and it created sector trends that these models were able to follow. So I think that was one of the areas where we saw some outperformance. The next one was the factor-based trend following. Now, factor-based is similar to sector in that still trading baskets of markets. The difference here is instead of upfront deciding what the basket's going to look like based on an intuitive economic sector, Mm -hmm. here you're actually using correlation to tell you, okay, instead of what market's are, you know, should be trading together, what markets are actually trading together. Right. So it's a similar approach, um, but but going at it from a, a different angle, so mm-hmm. to speak, and, and using that correlation matrix. Sure. That's very Next was, yeah. w- was really to enhance our lookbacks. So as I mentioned, going back to the 70s, we started as a medium-term trend follower, mm-hmm. which I would define kind of loosely as a one to three-month lookback. Sure. And as we did more and more research, we saw that maybe there was value in adding both shorter-term lookbacks, one month and in, mm-hmm. and longer-term lookbacks, kind of three months out to a year. Sure. Uh, though, though we still have held on to a kind of a core allocation of medium-term trend following because it has the best sharp ratio over the long term, we really like the diversification benefits of, say, the shorter-term models, which helps us in a trend reversal period to, to actively turn our portfolio quicker. Um, but we've uh, in, uh, intentionally lowered the allocation to short term because, in fact, you've always got to watch your trading costs. And in some environments, you can get whipsawed. So uh, we it does have the lowest risk-adjusted return of the three lookbacks. And so we've under-allocated a bit there, but we like the value that it brings to the portfolio. And then uh, in some cases, the, the what I'll call the anti-whipsaw, which is the, you know, it, it, you know elongating your look back so that you're, you're not seeing as much turnover that you need an, a, a very long, mature trend reversal in order to get you out of your position. Certainly the longer term models have done quite well in recent years in that it, in many cases, whether it was risk on risk off or taper on taper off, mm. um, you know, if you were say long equities, you stayed long equities, even though there may be a, a, a two week or a one month reversal in stocks, it took so much more to get you out of your position. So you, you held on to it. And, and I think that, you know, at our core, we believe in diversification. So it wasn't about deciding which of these three lookbacks was the best, but really introducing these two new lookbacks in the short and long term. Uh, to help complement the the medium-term models. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've been very busy on the research side in recent years. Would you say, just uh, not that it's 
that important but would you say that the last five years is where you've just gone through some some major uh, improvements would you say that that's probably been one of the most sort of the busier periods in terms of research upgrades and 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 really evolvement of of the strategy I think we've always been extremely active in the research process. As I mentioned before, you know, in recommitting ourselves to, to research after that 94-95 tough period, sure. um, we've always believed uh, in, in research and it's always been an active process. I think that it's much more that we made more significant changes to the construct of the portfolio post the 07-08 period um, because we really had to, to respond. As you and I have discussed, uh, we saw a significant outflow of assets. Mm. You know, at our peak in 2006, we were at 13 billion, uh, and and just a, a year and a half ago, or two years ago, when I, I took a, took the role, um, we had declined to two and a half billion. So, oh. um, in seeing those types of outflows, now, granted, um, I think we both can agree that some of that was was just based on the financial crisis. Sure. We, like many people, had investors on the institutional side, in particular, that had uh, you know significant uh, liquidity issues. And uh, one of the, the, the best selling points of commodity trading advisors is our liquidity. And so, uh, the, the, as the joke goes, we were the ATM of the hedge fund uh, industry, and everyone came to to get liquidity and cash from us. Yeah. Now, the other half of that story is is that we underperformed our peers in in those periods uh, in in 07 and 08, and and that also led to if you're going to take the money from someone, maybe you take it to uh, the worst performer during the period. And I, I think that we haven't talked about 2007, but there the story was different. There it wasn't as much kind of the balance between trend and non-trend. There, you know, in particular, you know, as we talked about, Campbell was really a pioneer in adding FX carry strategies uh, into a, a CTA portfolio back in the late 90s. Uh, and it worked quite well for us. In mm-hmm. fact, in, in many years between, say, 03 and 06, a lot of our outperformance came Came from FX carry, and and in 07, as we saw the beginnings of the financial crisis and uh, that that high period of risk aversion, uh, FX carry was one of the first things in many people's portfolios that were that were liquidated. So uh, we did see some uh, some losses as a result of that, which led to some of that outperformance, and then you know propelled additional tr- uh, changes in, on, on the research side and in the portfolio. Uh, one of the things was you know we moved away from naive carry and mm-hmm. and said that we're not going to have a carry strategy in the portfolio unless it has an enhancement or an overlay or a modulator that will help it in some of these difficult periods of risk aversion. Mm. Um, we, we also look to, to build out our non-trend-following suite of models away from just carry and, and in carry, not just in the asset class of currencies. So we, we, we added cross-sector models, which uh, take information from one asset class and use it to propel trades in others. The, the investment thesis there is that information we believe is disseminated at different points in time from one asset class to the other. And so that there's information that can be you know, gained, say, in equities that would allow you to trade currencies. And there are many examples. Um, we also added in short-term mean reversion, where um, there we believe that short-term mean reversion can help in, in, in several cases. But most importantly, after a long, mature macro trend, oftentimes, Um, you see not only the reversal, but sometimes a period of choppy price action before you break out into a new up or down trend. And so um, having short-term mean reversion in your portfolio actually gives you a strategy that can specifically perform in that environment, um, which we all know as trend followers is usually the worst possible environment Mm. uh, for a a trending system. Mm. Uh, So, um, you know, continuing to kind of build out that non-trend following suite um, you know, helped. And, and, and to be quite honest about 
short-term mean reversion, when I say short-term, I think I do need to, to clarify that sure. though these are the fastest models in our portfolio, they still only represent about a one to two week look back. So sure. they're faster than a three-month medium-term trend-falling system, but we in no way have moved into the you know high-frequency, interday trading um, type uh, world. Sure. Uh, and that, uh, But I, I will say from a CTA perspective, it has made us uh, more nimble. Yeah. Um, I think if you look at last summer as an example, when when many of our peers had difficulty during that kind of May through September period, after Ben Bernanke on May twenty second said uh, the T word or or, mm. or taper, mm. uh, and the, the 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 correlation between stocks and bonds broke down dramatically, and and many managers lost on both their longs and stocks as well as bonds. Um, we saw specifically some of our faster strategies like short term mean reversion very quickly covering our bond position, and within a matter of of about two weeks, we were effectively short bonds and had a hedge on uh, over the summer months. So we, we gave back a little bit but uh, of our gains for the year, uh, but not uh, you know these huge losses that we saw in, in other parts of the industry. Now, to be fair, um, at the beginning of this year, we underperformed a bit in the first quarter because those same nimble strategies, uh, when the equity markets corrected sure, in January- sure reduced our risk so that when stocks went back up to the highs in February, we didn't have the same equity position that many of our peers had. So I think at the end of the day, once again, it's about being correlated to the industry, but also being different so that we can justify our role in people's portfolios. I mean, I couldn't agree more uh, with what you said. I think that's that's very important. I have a, a philosophical question from the things that you just brought up uh, just now. And, and maybe it doesn't apply so much to you because, as you say, yes, you've gone longer term in equities because that's been a good thing to do. Um, but you've also maybe added some shorter term uh, models that kind of balances this out. But here's my concern a little bit. Because I hear that from many sides that uh, many CTAs, um, if we call them that, have become become more long-term because we know that that has been uh, a good way to um, enhance performance. Um, and certainly in the equity sector, where, as you say, we've been in a bull market for five years and with very small uh, corrections, so being very long-term has been the right thing to do. Here's my concern, though. If everyone is becoming more long-term, and in particular, if we're becoming more long-term in equities, are CTAs going to lose the value that they play in the portfolio of managers or, or institutional investors uh, who actually want CTAs to make money when, when equities go down? Simply, uh, are CTAs in general going to be too slow to react and are they all going to head for the for the exit at the same time given that i know it's a bit of a philosophical question and maybe you don't have a view on it but but i'm i'm just a little bit concerned because i hear this from from many sides about the time frame and in particular inequities i know i think it's it's a very topical issue and and one that we hear a lot in the industry so mm. um, a couple of comments uh, first off, as I mentioned, because we have um, added, you know, both short-term and longer-term lookbacks into our, we've in a sense embraced both of those elements. But right. I think that when you still look at the portfolio as a whole, um, it still is going to have a very kind of medium-term lookback because mm. it, you know, the short-term and the long-term, you know, balance each other out. As I said, if anything, the shorter-term systems for us are nice because it helps us to kind of cover our risk and maybe turn the aggregate position a bit faster. 
sure. than just a medium to long-term system. Um, but because we have implicitly made that decision and see the value uh, in adding in um, shorter-term models, I'm probably on the other side of, of, that, of that argument. Um, I, I do think that from a research perspective, one of the things that we're always focused on is looking at uh, every change that we make to the portfolio and what impact it's going to have on our, our correlation or beta uh, to the equity markets, to be, mm. to be quite honest. Because I think to your point, uh, there are a lot of investors out there who look at their managed futures or their trend-following uh, exposure as tail risk protection for traditional assets like stocks. Mm. Um, there's a reason that that term crisis alpha is used quite a bit uh, in, in regards to uh, describing commodity trading advisors. And so uh, I agree that, that we would not, as an industry, want to lose that because I think that's a very valuable role that we play. In fact, it's funny that uh, through this uh, incredible uptrend that, that the, the Fed, uh, if, you, if, you're, if, the, if you're of that belief sure. or if you think that, that equities have been going up for other reasons, sure. uh, has created. Now, as it turned out, if I think about the most recent correction, it actually happened in a, a, what I'd say a, a much more gradual, although uh, a few weeks ago, it, it sure. certainly felt a bit more, more violent. But if you think about over the last few months, uh, the markets kind of came off the highs. And in mm. our case, you know, the short and medium-term models had covered their, their long positions. The, the long-term models held on to their long positions. So for us, we really just kind of got flat the equity markets just in time for the abrupt downside moves to kick in. Sure. And so as investors look to our performance, uh, they, all, they actually saw positive performance in, mm. in large part because of the movement of flight to quality into bonds and our sure. long positions there. Um, now, as I look at the industry as a whole, I, 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 you know, we are seeing quite a bit of dispersion this month as an example uh, but, uh, across CTAs. And maybe to your point, that's because there were people that didn't get out of those long equity positions uh, and, and struggled a bit as a result. I think it's going to take more time uh, for us to really kind of realize that. But sure. you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily that managers in our space start to kind of, as I said, do things that are a bit unique and different mm. and try to differentiate themselves. Because if everybody has um, you know, a 95% correlation to uh, the largest managers or to the Barclays CTA index, then it's going to be really hard for, for people to be able to pick and allocate to, to managers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are two thoughts on that. Uh, one is, of course, that we know nowadays that investors predominantly uh, feel that uh, you know allocation should go towards the larger managers. That's clearly why you know there are uh, much fewer large managers and 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 a lot more small managers who are who are struggling. So in that sense, you know, it is also important that large managers do things differently and not you know become too correlated, as as you point out. But the other thing is, of course, there's also a problem for the smaller manager if we just talk about them for two seconds. And that is they want to they think that investors only want someone who looks like a Campbell or who looks like a uh, an aspect or whoever it might be. So they often design their systems to look like that. And actually, it's a bit of a shame because what really differentiate a manager from another is the manager itself. And therefore, you know, they shouldn't really try and look like anyone else other than what they really believe in. But it is, I mean, it's a difficult thing to do uh, in reality. Now, one of my listeners sent in a question that I think you might be really good at answering. And that is just, how do we respond as an industry to the fact that many investors and maybe those who have 
you know, left this space in recent times who claim that the reason why trend followers don't really make as much money uh, in the last few years has become simply there's too much money tracing the same trends and there's too much money flowing into this industry. Do you have a thought on that? Do you get uh, do you get qu- asked these questions on your side? You know, we, we, we were definitely asked that question a few years ago. I feel that 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 question hasn't been asked uh, recently, mm-hmm. um, because to be quite frank with you, in the last you know six to twelve months, CTAs have actually had pretty sure. pretty decent returns. Sure. Um, and though the industry has has shrunk a bit, it, it hasn't shrunk in a, in a in a large material way. And so um, certainly, um, you know, we continue to believe that there's efficacy um, in in what we're doing um, because profitability has has returned to the space. I think what will be interesting as well is to continue to follow the liquidity of the markets that we trade. And I think that I mean that to me, from a from a, a former trading standpoint, uh, is the thing that that I'm most focused on is you know the markets that that various CTAs decide to trade. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a there's a debate as to how how diverse you should make your portfolio and where you should have your cutoff point for liquid markets i i've uh, been quoted many times as saying that you know we have you know 80 markets uh, actively in the portfolio and though we we're always looking for new markets to add into the portfolio we're probably on the lower end of the spectrum and a bit more conservative when it comes to making sure that we're trading liquid markets because um, i i've said very frequently that you know when you when you have 200 markets in the portfolio Portfolio, you know, there's two risks there. Risk number one is is that you're starting to wade into markets that may not be nearly as liquid. And then, as we all know, as traders, you you know, tend to make money on the way up. But then, when everybody exits the trade, you give back everything you made and then some. Mm. So it it can uh, lead to losses for the strategy. The other risk is that you're just really doing it to effectively uh, you know add uh, a bigger number to the marketing brochure. And and there, when I say that, I mean that you know you can add a whole lot of additional international equity futures uh, to the portfolio. But if you're adding uh, a particular market that's got a 95% correlation to the Nikkei or the DAX or the S&P 500, um, you know, what are you really adding to the portfolio other than uh, another name, uh, you know, on your website as far as another market uh, to increase that number? Uh, and you're creating issues, you know, for the portfolio and the traders uh, because you could be putting something in that that's not as liquid. So I think there's there continues to be a, a real debate there. I think in addition to that. You know, there's been a real debate within the industry around um, how you weight your asset classes because mm-hmm. as managers have gotten, some of the bigger managers in Europe uh, have gotten larger, we've seen them focus uh, way more on financial futures. Uh, and I can only believe that that's because they are way more liquid than commodities. I mean, we I had an investor recently kind of jokingly say that Campbell's putting the C back in CTA sure. uh, for the multi-billion dollar space because we continue to have an even allocation when we start the day to all four of the major asset classes. And I think the fact that we have a 25% commitment to commodities is a real differentiator. You certainly see that with some of the smaller managers, uh, particularly in the U.S., uh, like in places like Chicago. Chicago. But for, for Campbell to, to have that much in commodities, um, I think it's it makes us a bit of an outlier. Uh, and, and listen, at the end of the day, we just see that there's some really unique opportunities. Commodities, we, we like to bucket them as an asset class. But when you think about it, between precious metals, base metals, energies, livestock, grains, you know, even 
this this subsector, soft commodities like coffee, uh, cotton, and sugar, um, th- these are markets that have very very different supply and demand. Um, Forces uh, and and when you're looking just within the commodity sub portfolio, uh, performance can be very different. So there's a lot of uh, diversity and opportunities uh, when you when you add commodities in a meaningful way. Absolutely. I mean, this was one of the things I wanted to go into a little bit more. So so I'm glad you uh, you took me there. Um, Given the fact that, as you rightly say, you know, trading AD markets is certainly on the low side, uh, for sure, uh, compared to the size of your portfolio and compared to other managers and the 25% allocation to commodities. What, what does that do, if you want to stick to this, what does that do to your optimal size, meaning growth? I mean, where, where does that allow you to go? And, and, and maybe you don't have an ambition of being as big as some other managers uh, I, I don't know talk to me a little bit about that sure well it's a great question and one that we get frequently from from our clients and our prospects mm. um, as we currently look at our existing portfolio and if we look at the markets that we're trading and assume that liquidity doesn't change we could run our current portfolio uh, up to about 10 billion under management mm-hmm. uh, so we've got four billion currently in the portfolio it means we have a lot of upside for growth mm. um, but if we're going to keep the allocation to both commodities as well as some of those shorter term strategies that I mentioned mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have to, you know, cap the portfolio. Now, a lot of things can change. Um, if think about it. Liquidity has come in quite a bit from the highs of 2008. Sure. If we were to see a return to uh, a rising uh, liquidity environment for, you know, fixed income, equities, currencies, and commodities, then that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as I said, just kind of looking at where we are right now, um, we have room for growth. But, you know, at this point in time, um, we don't have, you know, visions of of being a twenty or thirty billion dollar manager. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that said, I mean, we are always thinking about new products, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, diversifying yourself across, you know, different product sets. Sure. Um, we are we've been trading cash equities in StatArb for a number of years. If if interest were to come back into that space, um, that could be a portion of our business that would allow us to grow as a total firm AUM, mm-hmm. yeah. but wouldn't impact effectively our uh, our CTA AUM. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors at play. Uh, we want to make sure that we can grow. But I think that, you know, being a multi-billion dollar firm gives us a tremendous uh, access to resources to create an infrastru- uh, institutional infrastructure uh, that allows for, you know, redundancies and uh, plenty of headcount, legal and compliance to be able to deal with all of the challenges that, as you mentioned, uh, smaller CTAs struggle with today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we like being kind of in that million you know, billion dollar uh, group. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, many institutional investors look at us as somebody who has growth potential, whereas maybe some of the larger managers, they, they do fear that, um, you know, how much bigger can they get before it degrades their, their returns? Yeah, no, absolutely. I wanted to um, talk a little bit more, uh, more about the trading program. And in, in some ways, I, I wanted to give you kind of the, the opportunity to, to take us where you want in terms of describing or what you want to um, mention about the trading program and and so on and so forth. But I want to mention one thing that I noticed that I think is uh, certainly an interesting topic and maybe that's something you want to, uh, uh, you know, comment on. And that is how you create a strategy because, um, you know, maybe it's a bit difficult for many people to really understand how to 
Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.